when you compare different treatments to a placebo or to a sham, they found that treatment is better than placebo or sham. So at least we know as clinicians that what we do will actually matter. Plantar heel pain is super common clinically, and today we spoke to Dr. Henrik Real to uncover things like the definitions behind plantar heel pain. When do we say fasciopathy versus fasciitis versus plantar heel pain? And why those definitions and communications may be important to patients. We also explored treatment modalities like a strengthening long, heavy, slow load versus some of the more passive modalities like taping, orthotics, and shockwave. And some really surprising results there that Henrik shared with us. I hope you enjoy this episode. My name is Michael Risk, and this is Physio Explained. Henrik, thank you for joining us, and thank you for your time today. Thank you for inviting me. No problems. You've done a masterclass on plantar heel pain, and we wanted to go a little bit deeper on that with you in the podcast today. We thought we might start with definitions because you were saying off air that even noticing from clinician to clinician or place to place that the definitions can be muddled up. So if we started with, say, plantar heel pain versus plantar fasciitis or plantar fasciopathy, what are the terminology differences that you understand right now? I think that when we... uh... We discuss the condition with our co-workers, clinicians, and patients. I think that we don't necessarily know what is going on in the plantar heel because there might be several structures that are involved in producing pain and not necessarily just the plantar fascia. So generally, that's why we more and more often just call it plantar heel pain because that is what it is. And when we use, for instance, ultrasonography as a way of diagnosing the condition, what we look for is to see whether the plantar fascia thickness is increased or not. If it's increased, then we know at least the fascia is involved. And that's why we then would call it plantar fasciopathy, because then it's just pain from a fascia. A few years back, we normally would call it plantar fasciitis, because people just assumed that there was uh, inflammation. There were some studies that show there was no inflammation whatsoever. So the reason why it, it could be important not to call it a fasciitis is if the term would then lead to clinicians, um, general practitioners, for instance, who don't work as much, uh, potentially don't know as much about how to treat the conditions as, as some that are more involved in research and in, in treating this uh, type of heel pain. And they might be more prone to prescribing insights as treatment which we know that is, is not effective in this condition. So that is why we think that that terminology actually matters. And this is also why we don't refer to it as a heel spur syndrome, because if patients think that they have an actual calcification, this heel spur on, the, on their heel, and that is why they have the pain, then why should all the conservative treatment options that we use, why would they work? For instance, if we do stretching or strengthening, how would that remove some calcification under the heel. So that could potentially also hamper the compliance that they, they show towards the exercises, for instance. I like the distinction you make that if the clinicians get the definition wrong, it could potentially lead to incorrect treatment. And what about the impact on patients if they hear plantar fasciitis or they hear a spur? 
what can that lead patients to do or what have you seen in your experience? I think that it's, it gets uh, more and more difficult for them to buy into the treatment that you want to, to give them or, well, if, if it's something like exercises, for instance, or stretching, then we want them to do all the treatment themselves. And they don't necessarily think that it's, it's going to work if they think that it's a, an actual heel spur that is producing the pain that they feel. Mm. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. If, if we lazily use the term spur or itis when it's not, they might, one, there might be some really poor beliefs around that and what that means. There might even be some fear and some nocebic effect. They might also just start to reason, well, if I've got a spur digging into my tissue, how would loading it and exercising help? Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up and we started with the definitions. Just going on to the evidence now and, and some of the research you're across, what's the current suggestion for best management in plantar heel pain? Well, earlier this year, there was um, a study that was uh, published that, that is, is some kind of uh, best practice guideline. It was based on systematic review, expert clinical reasoning, and patient values. So it's like a, a triangulation of, of different types of, of evidence. And they came up with uh, what they called the, the core approach to management. And in this, this core approach, you should always educate your patients, which is what we, I think that we, we always uh, do. But they want us to decide on different factors as part of our education. For instance, uh, pain education, talking with patients about the, the prognosis address some of the related conditions there might be. For instance, we do see that one of the greatest risk factors is a high BMI. So trying to address that, trying to discuss weight loss, for instance, with the with patients. So that is part of the, the education. They also think that we should do plantar fascia stretching and taping in some instances where patients would be very interested in this brief short-term pain relief that taping might provide you with. You should also consider footwear, whether it's the footwear like shoes or if it's like insoles or foot orthoses that you could put into a shoe. So that is like the core approach, things that you should always consider, always use and discuss with patients. That is the, the first-line treatment. If first-line treatment then fails, you might start to introduce something that is slightly more invasive, for instance, a shockwave. And later on, as part of rehab, if uh, things don't go to plan, then you can consider an injection with a corticosteroid. So what they don't incorporate into this kind of progressive uh, line of treatment is um, doing heavy slow resistance training, which I've been more involved with as part of my, my research. So I see that as an alternative approach, something that you could also consider. For instance, if, if patients don't really feel that plantar fascia stretching is enough or they don't feel that that works, then that might be an additive to, to treatment. That's really interesting, Henrik. It, is it that they didn't measure the effect of strengthening in that first study you were speaking to or that they found the results were stronger with those other modalities? Well, at, at the time of the study, there was not sufficient evidence to, uh, to support 
strengthening. And before I started to, to do research on heavy slow resistance training and heel pain, there was only a single study that had looked into it. And that's also the reason why there was, there was this, this other systematic review and a, a network meta-analysis where they compared different treatments to see which is the best treatment for plantar heel pain. They didn't include that because it compared heavy slow resistance training with, uh, with uh, stretching. And they consider that to be two similar treatments. I fully disagree, yeah. <laughs> but I'm not going to take that discussion. Again, they just concluded that there was no superiority of one treatment over one of the other. But when you compare different treatments to a placebo or to a sham, they found that treatment is better than placebo or sham. At least we know as clinicians that what we do will actually matter. But which treatment is the correct one for the, this patient that you're sitting in front of? We have to, to base that on our expectations and our experience as a as clinician. Yeah, and, and probably what's, what's coming up through the interview and what's more important for the patient with that might challenge a few clinicians that listen to this, uh, the, the mention even of stretching and taping and maybe even insoles. What I'm seeing on ground is a lot of young physios really biased towards strengthening and moving away from some of those passive modalities. So how do you take that clinically? What do you do clinically when you've read that research that taping might be helpful, stretching might be helpful, but also knowing you are fair that you were saying strengthening is important. So how do you marry all that up in the, in the clinic, in the consult? What I do is what that I, I focus on applying some kind of treatment that would potentially increase patients' self-efficacy. The, uh, the self-efficacy is more likely to increase if they are doing something active, something that they can do themselves, for instance, stretching. But I use that as an adjunct to, for instance, insoles. But I then tell patients that insoles they should be viewed as something that just reduces pain immediately, but it's not going to um, actually treat the condition. So it's just pain relief, but it's not treating the condition. Whatever they are doing themselves is treating their condition. So the stretching, the strengthening, but also when they reduce their physical activity level or when they reduce whatever they do, that they feel aggravates their pain, that is also part of them treating their own condition. I really love that. And I think what you're speaking to is occupying the gray space in, in physiotherapy anyway, is that some of those older kind of passive modalities are still okay, but you're, impl you're applying a very positive narrative to them and very empowering narrative, and you're giving them their self-efficacy. You're letting them know that it's for temporary pain relief and we're probably not changing anything structural. We're not going to change how you move, just going to help. And then I feel like you're guiding them towards the strengthening or doing activities themselves at home. Is that kind of how you see mixing the passive modalities with, with the active modalities? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is also a way of, again, getting patients to, to buy in on well, your treatment, but also buy in on you and help this uh, patient therapist relationship that maybe you can do 
something that is more of a, of a, a passive modality taping or using insoles, something that they feel this, this is going to help them immediately. They're going to love you for it. They'll be more likely to adhere to whatever you're trying to make them do. Yeah, I like that. And selfishly, Henrik, I wanted to ask you about Shockwave because personally, I don't know a lot about it and it's never something we've had at our clinics. What's your impression or clinical opinion or the evidence suggesting about Shockwave for plantar heel pain? There's lots of um, evidence that actually supports the use of Shockwave as compared to, for instance, uh, injections with the corticosteroid. The effects seem to be similar. And there is this one very, very um, interesting study that was performed a, a few years back in 2005, and they compared two similar doses of Shockwave. And uh, in one group, they were anesthetized. They couldn't feel the pain that is associated with Shockwave. The other group really felt it, but it only worked in the group that received uh, or that, that didn't receive any anesthesia. So is it the shockwave that is working or is it just this uh, painful application of something? Wow. So patients can really feel that this is working. Well, it's, it's up to you to decide. But there is evidence to support the shockwave. It's not my go-to. Yeah. So I, I'd be, if we compare an injection uh, with a shockwave, I'd be more likely to go with uh, an injection with, uh, with corticosteroid. Yeah. Wow. That, that's really interesting. Almost like a no pain, no gain theory on patients. And just to wrap up on that, at what point in the treatment pathway will you explore with the patient that shockwave or cortisone, uh, it might be time to try those? I'd say after having tried something more passively for maybe 10 to, to 12 weeks, and if we don't see an improvement, or if patients still don't feel that whatever you have been asking them to do, advising them to do, if they don't feel that it is working and it's not going to work, then I would be likely to, to try something else. But sometimes you don't see an improvement among patients after, for instance, 10 to, to 12 weeks, but they still feel that whatever they're doing is going to help at some point. And then I'd be less likely, of course, to, to start something else. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it and a good time to start having the conversation about trying those other modalities. Henrik, thank you so much for sharing some of the evidence there and getting our definitions in line. And even the, that interesting study about the painful application of Shockwave, I really like that. Uh, you've also done a masterclass on this topic, which we're going to put in the show notes. You can listen to that for free. You can try that for free to get an insight into our masterclass. Henrik, thank you so much again for the pearls you've given us today. And thank you for your time. You're welcome. Welcome.